Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 9 through 11. Next week we will cover a little bit more ground, but these three verses are marvelous verses. I've titled this sermon, The Coronation and the Invitation, and I trust that the Lord will help us to understand more fully the truth that He's revealed in His Word. So let's look at the text, unpack the text, and then work to apply it. So the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 9, says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So last week, in the first eight verses, we looked at the coming of the king. Today the king shows up on the scene, and we see here the coronation of the king, and a little more subtly at first, we see an invitation. So let's look at the coronation, and then we'll get to the invitation that we see here. In those days, those days are the days that John was baptizing in the wilderness. Last week we talked about why the wilderness why John, John's clothes, what his message was. But John's baptismal ministry lasted for about 12 months. And as we read the other Gospels alongside this, we know that this event took place at about the six-month point. So halfway through John's ministry in the wilderness, Jesus came and was baptized, and their two ministries overlapped for six months. At the end of that year, John was arrested by Herod, ultimately beheaded, Jesus would then carry on for another two and a half years. It says Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. It's an obscure little place. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So I'll ask you a question. What was John's baptism about? It's a baptism of repentance, right? Why was Jesus baptized? You can't answer the question that clearly before I build up to it, but you're absolutely right. A lot of people have tripped up over this, why, John, why Jesus was baptized. Some people have argued that he took on a divine nature at his baptism. So up to this point, he was just a man. But then when the Holy Spirit came upon him, then he became divine. That is just completely false. Um, not by my preference, but by biblical teaching. Well, he was to be called Emmanuel, God with us, not Emmanuel to be in 30 years. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was sinless from birth. That's not what happened here. John didn't know what was going on. If you look over in Matthew chapter 3, you'll see that that John was a little confused here. Jesus showed up to be baptized, and John didn't say, hop on in. John said, yo, 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 stop. That's a a literal Greek translation I just shared with you. Uh, Matthew 3, that is not a literal Greek translation. In Matthew 3, 13, This is uh, Matthew's recording of this event. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized, but you and do you come to me? So if you don't have an answer quickly to my question, realize you're in good company. You're with John and he was the greatest of all people, according to Jesus. But Sean is absolutely right. To understand why Jesus was baptized, the blessed, blessed and best place to go would be to ask Jesus himself. And if you stay in Matthew 3 and you look at that next verse, 15, 
It says, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, John, listen, I don't want to get into a huge theological discourse here. Let's just say, God told me to be baptized, so I'm going to be baptized. Let's get on with it. Now, there's more to it. In fact, in John 1.33, John the Baptist was told by God that Messiah would come and be baptized by him and the Holy Spirit would come upon him. So this was a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. But what happened was, Jesus was baptized because God commanded him to be baptized. Plain and simple. You see, Jesus came to atone for sin, but he also came to live the life that we required of perfect obedience. Jesus' baptism wasn't so that he could be cleansed. Jesus' baptism wasn't so that he could repent of sin. Jesus' baptism was because as a man, God commands all people to be baptized who trust in him. So Jesus was baptized. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin upon him when you place your trust in him. And when he died and rose from the dead, he placed his righteousness, his obedience upon you. So when God looked at Christ on the cross, he saw Christ as if he had lived your life, full of all of your sin. And when God looks upon you who trust in Christ, he looks at you as if you've lived the life Christ lived, the perfect life of obedience, just as if I'd lived Christ's life. It's a little helpful understanding of justified, a much more full word. But when God sees us, he sees us through Christ, as if we have obeyed perfectly. That's why Jesus was baptized. So now we're back to Mark. So Jesus comes to John at the Jordan. He's baptized. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What this is, is an anointing. It's an anointing of the king. At the coronation of the king who has arrived, he's now anointed. Now understand a couple things here. This is not a vision. This is a real live event. The heavens literally tore open for people to see, and the spirit literally descended like, that'll be a key word in a minute, like a dove for people to see. John 1.33 speaks of John would see with his own eyes. People saw, and I'll show you in a minute, how Jesus brings us back. This is a literal, physical manifestation taking place for people to see. This is not some sort of uh, imaginary event incorporated into Scripture. Listen, if you wanted to have a man-made Scripture, you wouldn't go with these difficult things like, why would your perfect Savior be baptized? You wouldn't make these audacious claims, but what we have is a real-life historical event where the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended. Why did He descend? Why were the heavens torn open? Isaiah 64.1 reads, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Notice this, the, the Spirit descended like a dove. You ever been to a, a Christian, I hate that term, a Christian bookstore? Those are bookstores that have placed their trust in Christ. Or, you know what I mean, though. And you see all the paraphernalia. And there are lots of doves if you look closely. And the Holy Spirit is often associated with a dove. You, know, you, you see the outline on the Bible covers and the necklaces and the whoo, whoo. The Holy Spirit is in a dove. It's really important to understand. In fact, we shouldn't make any graven image to try to represent what God looks like. You're busting up the commandments there. But it doesn't say the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. It says he descended like a dove. And what that means is he came down gently. 
Scripture tells us that the dove is the gentlest of all birds. So the Holy Spirit, the heavens were torn open, and then God the Spirit descended gently down upon Christ. Didn't look like a dove, wasn't fluttering his wings. When you go to Genesis, actually interesting, in the beginning of Genesis, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you read some of the the Jewish um, translations of that verse, they will say, hovering like a dove over the face of the waters. Meaning, he didn't come destroying, he came gently upon Christ. Heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends gently upon Christ. Why does he descend gently? Well, Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, there shall come forth a shoot, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's speaking of Christ and what would happen. Isaiah 32, 15. It says, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And Isaiah 42.1, for one more messianic prophecy being fulfilled here. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Why is this happening? Is because in the Old Testament scriptures, God has prophesied and predicted that these events would take place. And at the coronation of the king, messianic prophecy is being fulfilled. Thus, people would see what happened. And there is no doubt that this is the promised Messiah. After this, well, let me make one side point and then we'll get to the affirmation in verse 11. A lot of people think Jesus performed miracles during his earthly ministry by his own power. So you get into a lot of extra-biblical teaching. I'm sure you've heard stories of how, how Jesus made these wooden birds when he was a kid, and then he breathed on them, and the birds came to life and went flying away. And he performed all sorts of miracles, but then we get to the Gospels, and we have recorded miracles. Here's the problem with that. Jesus didn't perform any miracles by his own power. Did you know that? Every miracle he performed, let me make sure I state this accurately, Every miracle that he performed in his human nature was through the power of the Holy Spirit given to him at his baptism. Because what you have is the triune God working together to bring glory to one another and to create a people of their own possession. So Jesus was sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to do the work of reconciling a lost humanity to himself. It's not that Jesus wasn't fully divine. It was The moment we have here when the Father empowered the Son to fulfill His mission by the Spirit. Do you see that? Do you see that perfect fellowship between the three, between the triune God? Then in verse 11, we have a voice from heaven, obviously the Father speaking. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Some people try to argue that Jesus was a prophet or a good teacher. Well, prophets were called friends of God, man of God, servant of God, but you'll never find a prophet called son of God. Jesus isn't a prophet in that nature. He is God incarnate. This is a man who is fully God. What's the significance of this? I just shared a whole bunch of facts. What's the significance of these verses that Jesus was baptized and when he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open and the spirit came down and rested upon him. And the father said, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Well, it's an incredibly significant event with immense application and implication for our lives. You see here one of the 
the most central Trinitarian passages. The Trinity, right? God, one, one in essence, three in persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Would you like me to unpack the Trinity so you guys can understand that completely? You guys want to do that? Good, because I can't do that. We can't understand the fullness of the Trinity. Why? Because we're, we're people and God is God. And I've heard the illustration used of worm speak. Imagine if, Bob, you were out for a walk in the woods and you dug up a worm and you decided to sit down and have lunch with the worm, not eating the worm, but talking with the worm. And you said, hey, let me tell you a little bit about myself. And the worm looks at you, uh, doesn't have any words. And you say, oh, my name is, is Robert Byerly and I was born in such and such and I've been to, and the worm's like, huh? Because all the worm knows is dirt and not dirt. Dirt, and I don't know much, right? So you speak to the worm in a way the worm can understand and he can understand part but he can never understand the fullness of a person because we're far grander than a worm. Infinitely more significant, God spoke in worm speak to worms like us so we could understand who he was. We can't understand all of whom and what God is, but we can certainly understand a significant portion. And when we get to the Trinity, what we understand is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal but we can't understand the fullness of how that is. You tracking with me here? But what you see in this text is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interacting with one another in an amazing way. And then you understand, as you look at it a little bit more closely, that they interact with one another in this event so that, don't miss this, so that we can interact with them in the same way. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, if you could rewind behind that, what was God doing? He's eternal. So, forever, before Genesis 1-1, God existed. What was God doing for all of eternity prior to in the beginning? Was he kind of in some vague nothingness, hovering around, bored, and one day he said, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I've got to have something to do, I'll make stuff? No. God lived in perfect, loving fellowship with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in perfect, joyful fellowship with one another. God wasn't lonely. God wasn't bored. God didn't need company. He was perfectly content and joyful for eternity past. And then he spoke. Why? This is mind-boggling when you understand this. This is mind-boggling when you look at what's going on here. God spoke and he made everything. As the pinnacle of his creation, he made mankind, man and woman in his image. And do you know why he made us? Not because he wanted to do something and had some free time. Hey, let's check this out. Look what I can make. No. He made us as image bearers so we could live relationally with a relational God. What you see here is God's relational interaction which Jesus came to make a way so that we could come back in because in the Garden of Eden it was messed up. You never see in Scripture the Father says to the Son, and bear with me here, I'm going a little theologically screwy, the Father doesn't say to the Son, you're to go and become a man, and the Son says, listen, I don't want to go down there, it's a mess down there, why don't you go down there? Hey, Spirit, you go down there, I don't want to mess with this. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, you, you got a real problem, look at me, people think I'm like Tinkerbell, I want some credibility, I want some recognition, you seen those stores, I look like a dove, give me a break. The Father says, you two knock it up, no, you don't see that, do you? Never. The Father sends the Son, and the Son goes to glorify the Father, and the Father sent the Son to glorify the Son, and the Spirit empowers the Son to glorify the Son, and the Father, and I'm not making that up, read John 17. 
God lives in a relationship where each person of the Trinity seeks the glory of another. And when you keep reading John 17, do you know what Jesus says he wants for his people? That God would glorify us too so that we could glorify God. What he's doing is making a way to bring us in to this perfect relationship. Now stop and think about that. God says, I made you because I want to share my joy with you, and you screwed it up so badly, but I love you so much that I'm going to send my only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And what we have here is the son coming, the king coming, to be coronated to reconcile a lost humanity to himself so that we can live relationally with God for eternity. Do you see that? Do you see how mind-boggling this is. It's an invitation is what I'm calling it. C.S. Lewis has this great illustration where he speaks of God, the triune God is living in an eternal dance. What does he mean by that? Well, you know, it's been a lot of years since, since I went to a dance. I think my last one was in sixth grade. And it looked like this. You had a bunch of the, the girls stood on that wall of the gym and the boys stood on this wall of the gym. It wasn't actually a dance. Everybody stood still. But later, I was engaged to this, this lady who's sitting over there, and she determined that at our wedding, we were going to do ballroom dancing. So we signed up for ballroom dancing lessons. I remember, yeah, one, two, three, four. There was three, I don't, but somehow it works. But to dance, you actually have to move around each other. Dancing is an I stand here, and my wife will dance around me. That's not dancing. Dancing requires two people to move around each other. Well, what you see here, what Lewis is talking about, is that the three persons of the Godhead rotate around, revolve around, serve, seek the glory of another. Do you see that? And what all people need, because we're created as relational beings, is to get into the dance. And Jesus came with an invitation to the dance. He says, can I put your name on my dance card? Will you trust in me? Will you allow me to die for you so that you might live and we can rotate, relate, seek to glorify one another? And they say, now wait a minute, you're saying God wants to glorify us? No, that's what John 17 says. That's, what, that's what's going on here. That's what's so mind-boggling. God didn't simply send his son so that you wouldn't go to hell. God didn't send his son simply so that you would go to heaven. God sent his son so that you could live in an eternal relationship with him as God relates to himself to share his joy with you. You're not becoming part of the Trinity. Understand? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You're never going to be God. But you will interact with God in a growing, intimate fellowship because God delights to share his joy, to tie his joy in with you. So look at, what's, look at what's happening here. God's lived in perfection forever. He sent his son to a fallen world so that he could save us, to welcome us into the dance, and so that we can rotate, seek to glorify God, and in glorifying God, we seek to serve one another. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. By this they will know that you are my disciples. Now in the flesh, we're stationary folks, aren't we? We don't want to dance with other people. People smell, they're a mess, they step on our toes. It's much easier to stand on the wall, and if somebody wants to dance, they could dance around me, and then get out of my way when I'm tired with them. But that's not what the Trinity does. That's not what we were made for. And on the other side of eternity, we will have pure delight in serving one another. 
But that's why in Scripture says, whoever wants to be first must be last. What does that mean? Get out there and dance. Live relationally with God. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about glorifying yourself. Worry about glorifying God. Do not seek the interests of yours ahead of others, but consider the interests of others as more important than yourself. That's what it says in Philippians. The triune God acts selflessly, desiring to bring glory to others. Why did Jesus die for you? What did you have to offer Jesus? Yeah, I mean, he's like, yeah, let me take your sin upon myself. This is going to be awesome. I'll break my eternal fellowship with the Father, and I'll die on the cross. And that's all we had to offer him was sin. But think about this. When we interact with people in the flesh, don't we kind of look and think, yeah, I like that person. I'll hang out with them. Well, that person doesn't look like too much trouble. I'll interact with them. And what we end up having is called gospel plus fellowship. What is gospel plus fellowship? Well, you, you, you take a church and you take the gospel, and then you add something that will attract some sort of homogeneous unit. So you, you want to have a Chinese church, so you have that common attraction. Or you want to have a Korean church, or you want to have a young, upwardly mobile church, or you want to have an old church, or you want to have a church with kids. And, and what happens is it's not that the gospel is removed, but the gospel becomes secondary because we're not dancing with others, we're wanting others to serve ourselves to a degree. And then when we get tired of that quote-unquote dance, we move on somewhere else. And any man can work that up. But only God can develop a relational structure where it's gospel only where people serve one another because they're growing in relationship with Christ and desire to serve him, not by mere duty, but out of a, out of a understanding of his beauty. Do you understand that? It's selfless. It's, I don't care about me. I care that God gets the glory. I walk in obedience to him, not because I have to, but because I know that by, it brings glory to him. And the side benefit of glorifying God is God gives you increased joy. Jesus doesn't say, love one another as I've loved you to see if he can make you lose your mind and just run away and give it up. He calls you to do that because that's how you were made to live. That, that is what we see exemplified here. The son became one of us and was coronated to reconcile himself, or reconcile us to himself. Remember when Jesus spoke of the cup? He says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, but not what? Not my will, but yours be done. In the flesh, we simply say, no, thank you. I don't want to drink that. Jesus shows us that in drinking the cup, he brings glory to the father and the father glorifies him. And an incredible work of a lost humanity being reconciled is accomplished. God doesn't give us a bitter cup to drink to make us miserable. He gives us a bitter cup at times to drink to share his joy with us. And you say, how can he do that? Well, look back at your life and see how God has worked. The dance. We see a dance taking place at the Jordan River. God invites us to the dance. He created us to share in his joy. The king has just been coronated to bring us to the dance. Do you see that? There is a a great banquet that will one day take place. There is an eternal dance in the presence of God that will one day take place. But we live in a unique time where by grace through faith we have been invited to the dance where we can relate intimately with God and Jesus is still in the process of inviting people to the dance and he invites them through the dance through people who are dancing with him. That's us as Christians. So we, in essence, go out like John and we call people to repentance. 
We speak the truth in love, and the Holy Spirit works through the gospel to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. We walk in obedience to Christ because it's through our obedience that the Spirit works powerfully. And we invite people to enter in to the rest of Christ, to enter into fellowship with God, to dance with God himself because God delights to dance with them. How do we put this into practice? There are two ways to live. Stationary or dancing lives. Non-believers all live stationary lives when it comes to God. They will demand that God dance around them. They will tell God what God should do, or they'll create a God in their own image. God to me. Um, R.C. Sproul Jr. uses that, that line. God to me. You ever hear people speak of God to me? God to me is a God of love, or God to me is a God of, well, but there's also the God of Scripture. And what happens for the non-believer, they all know there is a God. Romans unpacks that clearly. But they demand that God serves them. My friends, God demands that we serve him. The stationary life of the lost is what the devil calls us to. It's the easy way. It's a way of the flesh. It's wanting people to serve you. And when they become an inconvenience, you tell them, you know what? As Christians, we don't say go to hell. That would be harsh. But you say, get out of here and leave me be. But that's not how the Spirit works, because the Spirit calls us to live dancing lives where we seek to glorify God and serve one another. And the flesh and the devil work together to convince us, surely you don't want to do that. Surely that won't go well. Surely you could live a stationary life and have a life full of joy. The question is, who do you believe? The serpent from the garden who still speaks in our ears at times today? Or the truth of the eternal God who has never been wrong? As Christians, we've begun to dance, but we still struggle with being stationary. And what I, I hope we, we see through this text is that coming to dance with Christ is the greatest joy we can ever have. Think about it this way. I asked, what did, Jesus, what did we have to offer Jesus? And the answer is sin. That was it. In the Garden of Eden, there was a first Adam. And God called him to obey about a tree so that he could live. Right? Don't eat this fruit or you will die. So he called him to obey about a tree so he could live. Well, there's a second Adam who we know is Christ. And God called him to obey about a tree so that he could die. And he died so that by his death we might live. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteous of God. Now you stop and you look at this and you think, God is all-powerful. God is in control of everything. God is all-wise, all-knowing. And he shows us these glimpses of this perfect fellowship he has had for all of eternity. And through his son, invites us to enter into this fellowship, not after we die, but right now. And we enter into that fellowship by abiding in Christ, by trusting in Christ, by walking in obedience. And as we do, we go from duty to beauty. We go from doing what God tells us to simply because he tells us to, to doing what God tells us to because it brings glory to him. Because with that, he is well pleased. And as a side benefit, my friends, which is mind-numbing, God could demand that we serve him and be miserable because he's God. But he gives us this wonderful gift of obeying him and serving him by his power and gives us gifts beyond measure. He gives us his joy. He calls us to rejoice always. He doesn't have to give us joy, but he delights in sharing his joy with us. And the secret of Scripture, the the upside-down paradoxical life that Christ calls us to, 
It's so disorienting as we recover from sin addiction, but upside down becomes right side up. You must die so that you might live. It's in living, putting others first. In living, seeking the glory of God above your own. Then you truly live. Then you truly have joy. Then you truly have peace. Then we become a people who love one another that the world looks at and says, how and why? And we say, praise be to God. It's not because of I. It's because of the work that Christ has done as it is doing within me. Our job isn't to do a cheap five-year late imitation of what the world offers. Our job is to walk in obedience to the triune God. Can you show me anyone in Scripture who's walked in obedience to God and has said at the end, it wasn't worth it? Can you show me anyone in this world who has walked in increasing loving relationship with God who at the end says, no, it wasn't worth it. Worth it. If I could have just gotten that one more promotion, if I could have just gone on that one more vacation, if I could have just had that one more zero in my bank account, if I could have had 1,000 more square feet, if I could have had one more day of peace and quiet, then I would have been content. I know a lot of people who are coming to the end of the road who have had a lot of stuff who have traveled to a lot of places, who have had a lot of years of relative peace and quote-unquote prosperity. And as they enter into the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, they're miserable. I also know some people who have walked with Christ for many years, and some of them have a lot of stuff and have been on a lot of trips and have done a lot of wonderful things. And they're wonderfully content and complacent people, but it's not the stuff. It's the intimacy of relationship they have with Christ. I know others who have absolutely nothing, relatively speaking. I think of one guy I met in seminary who was from a, a third world country. He was royalty in the country. He came over, sold all of his assets, had $9,000 to his name. And he, he was, I mean, he felt filthy rich. He covered airfare for himself and his new wife. And they covered the cost of the beginning of their seminary education. And he was so happy. He had absolutely nothing. He had no funds to get him through. He had no home to go back to. He was so happy. And do you know why he was happy? Because he had Christ. This was a man who had nothing but Christ. And that is what he understood is through that nothingness, no matter if you're brought high or low. He was dancing with Jesus. He was living relationally with the triune God. And he was doing it not of his own merit, but by the merit of Christ who came down, who danced with the Father and the Son at the Jordan River, seeking to glorify one another and begin the process that we will unpack over the coming weeks of inviting us to the dance so that we could relate with them. Now today, we're going to take communion as a church family. And if you read scripture, you see that the Lord one day will return and take us to a great wedding feast, a great banquet where we get to sit and sup with Jesus Christ Himself, And if we read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26, the Lord's word reads, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So my friends, as we await the Lord's return, let us be reminded anew today and every day hereafter of the incredible king who came to save us, of his incredible love for us, and let us proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes, living as people who serve him in a great cosmic dance which he brought us into. Let me pray, and then I invite you forward to partake of the Lord's Supper, and then I will close us with a benediction. Father God, please help us understand more fully the incredible breadth and depth of the love you have for us. Lord, please comfort us. Help us to understand that we truly need be anxious for nothing. Help us live in the reality that you are in control of all things, that you love us far more than we can ever possibly comprehend, and that as your children through Christ, every minute detail that takes place in our life occurs under your perfect sovereign control and will be used for our good and your glory. God, allow us to rest in you as a small child rests in the care of their parents, to be able to sleep soundly trusting in you, to walk confidently trusting in you, to believe and to trust that you will care for us perfectly. But yet, Lord, let us not live lives of ignorance. Let us be wise as serpents and innocent as doves in your wisdom and in your strength. Lord, I confess that all of us at times seek to live stationary lives. Serving one another seems very difficult. It's so much easier to live on the margins. But Lord, like the the rope that Lucy brought, you've called us to live together for our good, but more importantly, for your glory. Lord, you call us to be a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people of your own possession, that we may declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, today as we partake of the Lord's Supper, please strengthen us, please nourish us, please remind us of the wonderful reality, Lord Jesus, that you became one of us, that upon your body you took our sin, and that by your blood our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Lord, may we be a people, and may this be a church that brings glory to you by being a dancing community who proclaims your love in your invitation to the dance to all the world that we are able for your glory and in your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to come forward.